Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to Conspira Normal, guys. This is Serfiel. And we just want to let you know that there is major spoilers if you've not seen Hellier and want to see it without a lot of stuff being totally ruined for you. Uh, if you care to be surprised, which there's a lot of surprises in it, so that'd be good to see it fresh. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of spoilers in here, so you should probably not listen to this. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. If you want to watch it, if you don't mind spoilers, go ahead and listen. Yeah, and uh, if, or if it just piques your interest, if you absolutely need some unheard listen. new conspiranormal, you can always go to Patreon.com/slash/conspiranormal and check out some of those bonus nice. episodes that you've been meaning to. Yes, please check those out. So, if you haven't listened to, if you haven't watched Tellier, go watch it before listening to this episode. If you're, if you want to watch Tellier but you don't mind spoilers, then go ahead and watch this. Listen to this episode. All right, thanks, guys. There's an awareness there where he doesn't. I don't know. My friend Tyler thinks that he's actually uh, some some god hiding as a human because he just should not exist. <laughs> should that not may, exist. That may be true. There may be there may be lots of those. Well, I um, I'll tell you. I I have enjoyed Hellier. Um, Thank I, you. Sorry, dropped my pen. I. I had I had kind of purposely avoided it watching the first season 
Uh, I just had Everyone not. Else, I had not gotten. <laughs> I, I'd heard so much about it. I said, "Well, maybe I'll get to it at, at a certain point." And then I knew about like a couple of months ago the second season was coming out. So I was just like, "Well, I'll watch it all." You know, I watch it all at the same time, which is what it's I actually, which is what I've done. Smart. Yeah, that's actually yeah. a much smarter thing because if you just saw the first, there was a lot of people who were upset, who were upset about the first season, <laughs> and uh, it probably makes a lot more sense when you watch them back to back. And honestly, um, talking, I know we're, we'll talk about synchronicities, I'm sure, but, you know, me putting up that, us putting up that Alan Greenfield interview right after you Dude, guys right? had um, put out the, the second season, that was not, I did not mean that. I, I It was, <laughs> we, we just got like two weeks ahead in recordings and I was like, we'll put it out on this date just to give us some time over Thanksgiving break and all that. Yeah. And then I put that out like, and I didn't even realize I, I, I had Dude, no, I clue. It. no clue. I, I love it. I mean, I knew it was coming out, but it just didn't register to me that Greenfield was that big of a part of it. It's just the universe working for Greenfield to sell him books is what this is. Hellier's actually all about. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We yeah. speculated that. Yeah. Yeah. Although I can say that because I was having him on, um, to get, I got the secret cipher of the Euphonauts, so but that had, at the time nothing to do with Hellier, but kind of does now. There you um, go. So, uh, let me ask you before we start: How much yeah. do you want to talk about? Because I know that there's, we can we talk about anything? I mean, uh, I, Sergio and I have both watched it. Um, I know that we'll probably probably what we should do is put like a spoil alert at the beginning. We yeah, can do dude. That. If you guys do that, like fair game. Let's okay. we'll, we'll talk about cool. whatever you want. Yeah, let's yeah, we'll, let's make, we'll make a note to do that. Um, so I mean, I I've just got there's no way we can dig into everything. There's just there's just <laughs> there's just there's just too damn much. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. First, I can't even remember all of it to be honest with you. Poor Carl, I don't envy his job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys. Um, you guys definitely done something special here. That's for sure. Absolutely, Thank you, man. And I, I know it's um, it's 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 been one of the most debated shows. That's great. Because either people really like it or they really hate it. There's <laughs> yeah, no, I know. there's no, there's no real in between. No, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, kind of interesting in and of itself for, for a project that covers liminality. Funny that there's really no middle ground. Good point. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Very good point. Okay. All right. Let's get, we'll get started here. Welcome back to Conspiracy Normal, guys. Welcome back. It's Adam and Serviel. And guys, unless you've not been, unless you've been living under a rock or in a cave the last few weeks, there has been out on the internets specifically Amazon Prime and YouTube, a documentary series called Hellier. The second season. The second season that just came out. And we have one of the people that is intimately involved with this and is a big part of the second season of Hellier, Greg Newkirk. And Greg, welcome to Conspiranormal, man. Man, thank you guys for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, we're excited too. Um, especially since we, um, I think Serfiel just like finished it. I think he's still got 30 minutes left or something. <laughs> oh man! 
on the last uh, on the last episode. Adam, Adam oh provided God. a pretty good spoiler, though. So. Just hit pause right now, and I'll wait half an hour. Yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's so much. And man, you know, it's like we've kind of been uh, we were talking a little bit before, like we've been circling each other for a while because as I told you before, we I remember you from Ghost Hunters Incorporated. And then, you know, we've had on a few people that have been on that. Did you know? I mean, uh, John Tinney. So yeah, we've course. had on several times. Uh, Aaron Gullius. I don't think you're yeah. familiar with him. The Saucer Life. He got a nice little cameo in there. Uh, cruising with state guys are another good friends of yeah. ours and uh ren collier i know you of know course. Ren. of course you use ren's program uh, yeah uh, naq.io yeah yeah that has that is like basically the computer program of the secret cipher for the euphonauts and much easier <laughs> than than doing yes, it by hand yes yeah much easier and we had not that long ago like about like two episodes ago now yeah two episodes Alan Greenfield, who is probably the nexus of this whole thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which is joking about how Hellier Hellier just seems like the universe's uh, way of selling Alan a lot of books. Yeah, and um, you know, when I put up the when I put that up that show, I had absolutely no idea that Alan was as involved in Hellier in the whole show the the whole story that as he was mm-hmm. i didn't have any clue and Aaron Gullius puts us up uh on his twitter and says you know if you're interested in hellier check out this interview that conspiracy normal did with <laughs> alan greenfield and then you retweeted it which is basically how <laughs> we talked about you coming on the show so i love it um i guess man let's just start from the beginning like how did this uh how did this happen you started to come involved with like this case that had to do with goblins and <laughs> you know yeah. that, that are that are kind of similar to the Kelly Hopkinsville stuff which is something we just talked about not that long ago mm-hmm. with uh John Tinney and uh Aaron Gullius and Richard Haddam yeah it, it it's insane i mean it's uh this is nothing i ever would have expected to be involved in um, it happened in 2012. I got an email from a guy who said that there were little creatures coming out of a mine shaft on his property in uh, rural Kentucky in the town of Hellier. And they were tapping on his kids' windows at night. They were scaring his family. They took his dog. And he claimed that he was told by a man that we both knew, uh, Terry Rist, that I was well equipped to handle these problems. And he sent this email to my old Ghost Hunters Incorporated email address, my old website, which had been defunct for years. And uh, none of it really made any sense to me. It still doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. Because if you were to have gone to that site, you you knew Ghost Hunters Incorporated. It was a bunch of teenage kids with like, you know, axes and swords and, and torches on the front cover wearing bowling shirts, you know, didn't make any sense that someone would say we were well equipped for this type of problem. And uh, I just thought, well, it's just somebody messing around. You know, it's one of my friends. And I sent him an email and I said, well, listen, you know, I'm, I live in Canada now and uh, I can't just come down to Kentucky. So you have to give me some evidence, some proof that this is going on. 
And he's <laughs> like, okay, fine. And he sent a bunch of pictures of these three-toed footprints and uh, some some very uh, in in true paranormal fashion, some very indecipherable photos that he said showed the the creatures themselves. And uh, the footprints were enough to make me go, oh, maybe there's something to this. And then this guy just disappears. And that's sort of where everything in Hellier takes off is uh, years later trying to find this guy and uh, see if if this even ever happened in Hellier, Kentucky. And that just sort of cracks open a bigger, wider, weirder case that we've been chasing down for two years now. So you never found him? No. As I understand. Nope. nope. That's actually the first season uh, is us realizing, not number one, not only did we not find him, but we found out nobody by the name David Christie which is the name this guy gave. Nobody by this name ever existed in the broader Pike County area. Uh, so David Christie, as far as we know, is not even a real person. Um, the only reference to this guy, Terry, Terry Rist, who eventually ended up emailing as well with coordinates and very cryptic phrases like, why did you stop when you were so close? Uh, the only reference to that guy that we could find was in the very back of Alan Greenfield's book, Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts, in a, an interview uh, with with Terry, uh, where he talked about going into underground alien cave bases and cleaning them out with a bunch of uh, like Vietnam veterans, um, and then performing you know strange magic in order to repel or summon extraterrestrial entities meeting indrid cold was another yeah. thing in the in the interviews so uh really really weird connections to stuff that you know me as someone who came from a, a ghost hunting background uh i never had any inkling of and never really had a whole lot of interest in but now, <laughs> two years later, I have learned more about, you know, uh, ritual magic and ufology uh, than I ever have learned any time before this. Yeah, you've definitely gotten into the weeds on a lot of this yes. material. Uh, you mentioned something there in the email. Maybe I didn't catch that in the first um, season, but the this David Christie person said that he knew Terry Rist. Yes. And yeah, he, you knew Terry Rist. So you yeah. like so you, this was someone that possibly someone that you may have encountered at a certain point and not have known it. That's uh the way that it sounded to me was like it was somebody that I knew well. That somebody that I'd had uh, you know right. that I was fairly intimate with. But I, I've, I, number one, I've never met anybody with the ridiculous name Terry Wrist. Right. <laughs> and right. and no one has ever said to me, hey, I I like to hang out on the internet and uh, go by the name Terry Wrist because I used to blast aliens underground uh, back after I got out of Vietnam. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> so I'm fairly confident that I do not know this guy. Although... You did, you did doubt that possibly that, you know, cause Terry wrist, I mean, terrorist, I mean, that's, yeah. I, I, I think when I read that in secret cipher, as I was preparing for that interview, I didn't even make the, even, I didn't even spell it out for myself what that, but you know, that's terrorist essentially. 
But yeah, when you see it, when you actually see it written, you don't yeah, think about it. But about when you it. say it, you're like, oh, I get it. Right. And but you did find someone. You did find someone that actually may have known him at a certain point. Yeah, which uh, was interesting season. to me. You were in Cleveland, Tennessee, which is about twenty miles from where I grew up. But anyway. oh, no joke. Yeah. Hmm. Well, season two. I mean, that's one of the the cool things about the way that we released Hellier is we we wanted to release it for free and show it to as many people as possible. And so when the first season comes out. Um, we got so many emails from people, uh, like, like I have a stack of emails the size of my head that are everything from like, my grandparents saw these things. They said, don't, don't ever follow anything that looks like a kid into the woods. Um, you know, my, my uncle used to talk about these things or I've seen these things, uh, all the way to, I, I've, I've met Terry wrist. I am Terry wrist, uh, all kinds of, of emails and one of them was a guy that really painted this pretty good picture of meeting terry when he was like 15 and uh he was into doing an interview so actually in uh in the second season i think it's episode six which lines up with the release of hellier uh the first season um we sit down with this guy and he he has a pretty convincing story about meeting Terry and uh, why we may not want to meet him. <laughs> yeah, that he was into some serious militia style stuff. Yes. In the 90s, at least. Which is yes. strange because when we interviewed um, Alan, he would, he was talking about Jim Keith and he, he, the way he, he right. the way he talked about how Jim Keith was into weird malicious stuff. And I'm not into that. And like, it seemed mm-hmm. like a weird choice of words. I understand he's really referring to that time, but the way he kept yeah. saying malicious stuff. And now, and now after watching Hellier, I'm like, holy shit, there's a whole nother dimension. And I guess there's a lot of these characters that Alan was probably pretty, you know, around also. Well, I think that's one of the things, you know, Alan, we had a five, six hour interview with Alan when we sat down with him. And so we only show maybe, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes of that. Uh, and, and there's a lot of stuff that was on the cutting room floor. But, you know, Alan ran with some pretty interesting folks back in the day. That yeah. guy's been around. And so he knows a lot of dudes. And even his characterization of Terry was a little bit different than this guy's that we had met. But there was so much that lined up. Um, it just seemed, it was just really tough to disregard anything that this other guy, uh, had to say. And, um, it, you know, there was a thriving, a real thriving group of, of anarchist militia types who were very against the government and were into some really weird esoteric stuff back in the nineties. And it sounds like that's where Terry was, uh, hanging out. He was like a... He was like a militia thelemite. Yeah, kind of weird. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Which, I don't know. I mean, does that kind well, of fit, you think, with Thelema a little bit? Well, some, some I mean, there's always, well, then there's, there's always been kind of that uh, extreme right wing thread to some occultism, too. So that it, it does make sense. Yeah. Which is interesting because even Greenfield, the the characterization of Terry that he had, was that this guy was very much like left wing and not right wing, wow. but he was still like hmm. left wing anarchist. Um, but wasn't he talking so about know. like shooting the ketchup bottles and like communists or 
<laughs> well, that was the other guy. That right, was the other right, guy who was right. talking about that stuff. So oh, that's one of those okay. things where yeah, yeah. there's there's this weird bit where it's almost like if this is the same guy, people were seeing different sides of him. Or he's um, playing a game with him. Or yeah, or he's playing a game because this guy seems like he'd be very intelligent. Even uh, you know, Alan says he was what we would call a hacker. Um, he was a smart guy, and even you know the other guy who who met him, Vaughn, was like, no, he was he was really well read, really intelligent. And he was always testing you to see if you could uh, reach up to where he was at. Otherwise, he didn't want anything to do with you. So, I I know that in the in the first season that you guys speculate a little bit about, and you your thought process is that Terry and Alan Greenfield were the same person. We thought that right up until and, we met out. And it's interesting that you said that because when I read that in the book, The Secret Cipher, I thought to myself, it seems like he's interviewing himself or this is something yes. that he's he's making up for some kind of interesting reason. Yeah, but, or like uh, it was information he couldn't share under his own name for some reason. You right, know? right. Yeah, something like, yeah, something like that. And whatever reason that would have been, he was kind of interviewing himself and this is kind of like a story or an allegory that he's doing. But what are your thoughts on that now? Oh, I don't think that at all now. Okay. Um, after sitting down with Alan, I mean, it's so funny, right? We were, we'd never met Alan before. I'd emailed with him a bunch um, back in like 2012, 2013, and a few times after that. Uh, and he was always super cordial and helpful, but I'd sort of painted this idea in my mind, and I know that the other guys had too, of this, this, you know, dark ritual magician. And, you know, he was involved in some of the, the earliest, you know, classic ufology cases. You know, he wrote the intro to Gray Barker's Silver Bridge. And we'd built this guy up into this dark, mysterious character in our minds. And then we go to meet him and we're nervous because in our heads, we might actually be meeting Terry right now. And then I meet this guy who's just like super friendly, happy dude in a Hawaiian t-shirt. Right, right, right. <laughs> and I'm like, immediately, I was like, oh, this guy's a trickster, but this ain't him. And Terry, this is not Terry. Uh, and we left, you know, we left that interview with him going, no way. There's just no way. Wow. But yeah, it sounds like the type of person he would maybe be around well um, oh for sure for sure let's add in this just some of the thoughts that i had about um greenfield and terry wrist and what could be going on um I, you know i don't know i you know just kind of like a speculation on my part we talked a little bit in the beginning of that interview with alan about carrie thornley uh, yeah. are you familiar with carrie thornley uh, vaguely, yes. So, you know, he was pretty much one of the fathers of Discordianism, along with right. a guy named Greg Hill and also Robert Anton Wilson. The Illuminatus yeah. trilogy stuff. For sure, yeah, uh, yeah. Cosmic Trigger, all that. Um, right. And there was this, there was, the, there's this thing in Discordianism called Operation Mindfuck. And basically it's, you're doing these things that just kind of like mislead people just to cause some kind of like social chaos, essentially. Yeah, to, to, right. to hail Eris. Hail Eris, yeah, the <laughs> goddess of Discordia. Right. Right. And so there's all this kind of thing. And when, as I'm kind of, you know, you do a good job, you guys do a good job in the documentary of like bringing the audience along with you 
And as I'm, you feel like you're going through this journey along with you guys. And as I'm watching this, I'm thinking to myself, these emails that you're getting and all this, it just seems like classic Operation Mindfuck stuff. <laughs> and it very well could be. I, I'm the first one to say we have no idea what the fuck's going on, man. Mm. Even now, like right. I'm, I'm more con- – there's a lot of things that I'm, I'm confident we figured out, but I'm more confused now than I was at first because it seems like there's a very well-defined path. But none of it really makes any sense. <laughs> but even if it started with some hoaxing, you know, phenomenon can still happen after that. Like a, a oh, absolutely, something like some kind of artifice can actually get the ball rolling, and then all these people put energy into something that actually turns into this phenomenon. Well, that's one of the most fascinating things that we dive into a little bit in the second season yeah. is some of the parapsychologist uh, George P. Hansen's work. Uh, yep. He put out a book called Trickster and the Paranormal, which very, very thick and very academic. But the ideas that it presents are fascinating because it's all about you know marginalism and liminality and about why it's it tends to be marginalized people or people in a state of 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 change where a lot of this paranormal activity happens and those types of like, here's the thing. If David Christie never existed, if somebody was just sending us on a wild goose chase, that's actually a perfect place for the phenomena to manifest and hide, particularly now that there's thousands of people paying attention to it. There very well could be something manifesting because of a wild goose chase. Yeah. Well, and then the this whole effect of you said that you were you're doing episode six of season two. That's when Hellier the first season actually went live, right? Yeah, that catches up to the first season coming out. And almost everyone I talk to, they're always like, "Oh man, six, oh six, six, six. And it seems like the effect of the audience starting on one, you know, might have put some like extra energy into it and after that it's just like this crazy snowball yeah that's what i said to you too it was like if you're gonna if you we, we didn't know if surfiel was gonna have time to watch most of it so i was like if you go to watch something go to episode six <laughs> That was <laughs> <laughs> well i mean that's that's one of the things that we we look at this season is there was a guy who after after the first season came out he his name's jeff ritzman and he sent yeah. us a a really long email where he talked about how he believes that Hellier is uh, a hyper sigil, kind of like uh, Grant Wilson or Grant Wilson, Grant uh, Morrison's The Invisibles. Right. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that Terry and David are sigils and that Hellier is the altar in the field of play. And the idea is there's some effect that somebody is trying to achieve by putting us on this path and then the fact that we have gone ahead and made a documentary series about it is only amplifying this effect. And I don't know how much I fully agree with that. I think there's interesting ideas in there. Um, more than ever, I think that what we're doing is is some sort of path initiation, not necessarily even for us, but for the viewers. You know, there's a lot of people who are talking about uh, occultists in particular who reached out after the first season and said, you guys are doing an initiation. Like all the signs are there. You're doing some sort of a ritual. The second season, I think makes that much clearer and even further brings the viewer into that ritual. And which is not something in the first season that you even remotely thought that you were doing. 
No, we thought we were going to go and and look for goblins in some guy's backyard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it was a totally different thing. We thought we were making uh, an hour and a half long documentary that we might send to a film festival or something. Um, and once we were done, you know, Carl's like, "There's more. There's something else going on here. We can't stop now." And uh, so we tried to we tried to preface the release of Hellier by saying, "Like, listen, this is two weeks of work." Um, this, you know, this was two weeks in the field. Carl spent the next year editing it. Uh, we try to say like, listen, this is a prologue to something bigger. This is a prologue to something bigger. And that's season two. And then potentially anything that comes after that. I think season two, uh, contextualizes what happened in season one a lot better. Mm-hmm. And if you watch them back to back, it makes a lot more sense. Cause if there were a lot of people who are very divided on the first season, um, it's it, we were talking before we went live about how you know 50% of people love it and then 50% of people hate it which is fascinating to me um until the second season came out the second season gave it a bit of a boost but the amazon ratings were uh 40% one star this was a waste of my time these guys didn't even find a fucking goblin <laughs> and then people and then really the, want people really want that payoff that's they that's really the part do of it. yeah and I think, you know, I, I, I can't blame them because they've been trained to get that. You know, there's a lot of – Hellier's not a typical paranormal television show. It doesn't work like they're used to. And so when they don't get that payoff that they expect, they kind of internalize it and get upset. Mm-hmm. And so 40% of them were one-star, no-goblin reviews. And then 40% of them were five-stars. This changed the way that I think about the phenomena. I can't wait to see where this is going. And there were really no three stars. So there's nothing in the middle, which is really interesting because that means that it really strongly affected people's uh, mm-hmm. feelings, which I think is the first hint we had that there was something weirder happening with Hellier. Right. And just a lot of people aren't familiar with kind of what what that's about. I mean, going back to where Adam was talking about Discordianism, uh, Robert Anton Wilson had that book, Cosmic Trigger, in mm-hmm. which he comes up with this idea of uh, what he calls Chapel Perilous, which is that his yes. life becomes overcome by synchronicity. And yeah. this and is the be- only way to leave the Chapel Perilous is to become an agnostic. Right, right. And yeah. that's kind of, so this, you know, making Hellier became you all's Chapel Perilous, this, this journey. Sure. And so a lot of, you know, a lot of people aren't familiar with this, you know, ideas of synchromysticism and these kind of things. So a lot of it's really abstract. I think like what Greenfield says is that especially uh, Hellier is really going to be popularizing these ideas, I feel like. Well, I, I'm a, the thing I'm proudest about with Hellier, and I know that the rest of the guys, I, I can speak for them on this, too, is uh, I've I've never seen a program prompt so many people to buy so many books. Yeah, that's and, great. And they get to do their own research. Like, that's the thing. Like, we're just giving people a toolbox and saying, here, take what you need and leave the rest, and you can do this too. And, I mean, the, the book list for season two is like 20, you know, two dozen books deep. And people are reading weird stuff that they never would have ever read before. Have you printed off a bibliography or anything? Kind of like no, no, people have, people have been begging us to do it, but somebody actually went and made a really great um, Goodreads list. So people oh, can nice. actually go and, and find that and then just see pretty much every book that was referenced in both seasons. That's cool. We'll have to share that with the audience. Yeah, let's, it's cool. Let's talk a little bit about Injured Cold. Now, this whole thing, this this investigation that you guys went on trying to figure out 
who Indrid Cold was or whether Indrid Cold was still alive or which by the way I remember seeing that um and I talked to Aaron Gullius a little bit about it that whole thing about Indrid Cold being dead and yeah yeah <laughs> that that odd tweet so it's interesting Plot you guys brought twist. that up yeah so do you feel that that was kind of a dead end that that was just another rabbit hole that you went down that didn't go anywhere or is there more to it that's a tough one to answer um because i think that's changed for us a bunch of different times during the the filming of hellier uh you know the first the first connection to indrid cold you know carl found from that first email and in reading the secret cipher it was a reference in in one of the first emails from terry that said um what did it say it said the ink the ink and black are still isolated and the third order MIA. And, you know, it just sounded like gobbledygook at the time. Um, but Carl figures out, oh, no, he's talking about Indrid Cold because he used the cipher. Terry used the cipher back in like the 70s to find Indrid Cold's home in this town, Ashland, in, in Kentucky. And uh, so immediately there's this thread that we didn't expect that ties into injured cold that we were sort of forced to follow and we follow up on that in the second season and we're pretty pretty certain that we found the place where terry allegedly met indrid which of course this place was bulldozed and the house isn't there anymore it's a parking lot now uh but all the records are there um and then because we're looking into Indrid, we have to go and we have to talk to anyone that might have known him. And the last person that really exists that met the man, that claims they met the man, is Tanya, Tanya Derenberger, uh, Woody Derenberger's daughter, who you know claims that you know she wrote this really cute book about growing up around Indrid Cold and playing in a you know a, a refrigerator box with him, pretending it was a spacecraft and stuff like that. And Interesting. <laughs> we went and met her, and um, she was very endearing. Uh, I think the the thing we took away from it the most was the fact that no one's talking to her. You know, there's these there's these people that are out there that were part of these big crazy stories, and no one is talking to them. And all it took was for us to send her an email. And uh, she claims, you know, people find out. In the series, she claims that uh, she was visited by Indrid's sons one night in the middle of the night, who she claims stop by and see her quite often. And they deliver the news that Indrid and his crew had died in a ship crash. And uh, I don't know what to make of it. Still, I yeah, I don't this know. Was Connor and Con- Conard. Yes, Connor, a... Connor or Conard or however you're supposed yeah. to. Yeah. Um, Weird. Yeah, yeah, that they they showed up and said uh, Indrid's dead. Um, he was in a he was in a ship crash. They were chasing humanoids, and uh, the ship blew up. And uh, Carl Ardo, his captain or his pilot, was taken out too. And uh, so, you know, we just assume well, maybe the, that's that's it. Then that leads dead. If if Indrid was still around and there was this entity, he's gone. Um, but then, you know, as we continue through the series, there are these weird little hints. Um, you know, one of the things that we do in one of the later episodes is we do a, a, a hypnosis experiment. And a lot of that experiment is on the cutting room floor because it, there's only so much we can show of this stuff before people kind of, they need to get moving. But uh, Indrid and Carl come up a lot 
in those sessions. And we're not really sure still. I mean, that's still a kind of weird dangling thread that we we could pull on if we want to. I just don't know where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Well, in a lot of these... I think a lot of these synchronicities and, and different bits of information were kind of just served as steps to the next, uh, for sure to the next thing and not necessarily, yeah. you know, they might seem like dead ends, but would you arrived at the others without them? You know I mean? So it's kind no, of, they're I think all that's, kind of integral. I think that's exactly the point, uh, is that sometimes these things, you know, it's something that Alan tells us when we interview him, which gave us a lot of context. He said, uh, you're on a path stop paying so much attention to the person who placed the markers and just follow the path. Right, <laughs> Otherwise you're going to drive path. yourself yeah. insane. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, <laughs> that was a very, very interesting discussion you had with, uh, with Alan. Uh-huh. That was, uh, I actually got a lot out of that. Um, so you guys eventually you end up in this place called Somerset, Kentucky. Yeah. And a lot of stuff about Kentucky. I mean, uh, Getting lucky That's, in Kentucky. Yeah, yeah, we go <laughs> getting lucky in Kentucky. Yeah, it, you know, uh, it, it's interesting because Peter Lavenda in, in the Sinister Forces books, you know, talks a lot about Kentucky. Right. And just like, there's always this weirdness with that area. And there's dark all this and stuff bloody like, ground. Dark and bloody ground. Hey. I don't, I don't know if, uh, you know, that if this is true, but I, you know, I've heard the stuff about like the Native Americans wouldn't even go there. Yeah, that was the place where just, they would just hunt, but they yep. wouldn't actually live. Um, and there's this all this stuff about the 37th parallel, mm-hmm. which is interesting. And so, you, but so you get another email, yeah, from a woman this time, yeah, claiming this about Somerset, Kentucky. And I wanted to ask you this: you were worried that somehow maybe she saw Hellier, but you hadn't actually put it out yet. So were there advanced? things yeah. running around or something or so the way this all went down was we were still Carl was still editing uh Hellier and we were trying to decide what to do with the project um we were talking to different outlets we were trying to decide whether it was good to release it on our own and there were uh, uh some very early screener cuts that we had shown to some friends not a large group of people um but enough to get opinions on it and they were only our closest friends but I still, I mean, I remember being like, I don't know, man, I think maybe we should, you know, like, let's ratchet this down because you never know, you know, you get something in, in advance and you never know who somebody's going to show, you know, they they feel excited because they have something no one else has. So come over. I want to show this to you, that type of thing. Yeah. And the day that our friend Tyler decided he wanted to go and follow up on one of the loose ends, which was the GPS coordinates that Terry had sent. The day he's preparing to leave, he's leaving the next morning, just hours later, an email comes in. And it is, uh, I mean, it's basically another David Christie email. Uh, the, The subject heading is almost the same. It's another urgent, please respond. And then in these, this, this email, there's all these trigger words that make me go, fuck, somebody saw Hellier. I thought someone was trying to insert themselves into the story or, or you know, push us in a, in a direction. I thought someone had seen one of these earlier cuts and was trying to either screw with us or just try and, like, I don't know, become part of the story somehow because there were words like euphonauts and slough in these emails. And, and Hellier was not out. It wouldn't be out for another six, seven months. 
Right. Right. And so I had a a meltdown because I didn't know how to best approach these emails, whether to think that this was for for real, someone who actually was was earnestly asking for help, uh, and it was related to the case, or if somebody was screwing with us. So I didn't even tell Carl and Connor about it for the first few months because I didn't I didn't trust them. I thought they had shown somebody something and I was waiting to see how it would shake out, but nothing ever came of it. And the emails just got weirder and weirder until just like David, she disappeared. And so it was actually the very final day of shooting for the first season. Carl was shooting the, uh, the goblin bust that Tyler had crafted that you see in the main titles. He was shooting that on our kitchen table and he's done, and he's like, "That's a wrap on Hellier." And I was like, "Well, might not be. Come and have a seat, man." <laughs> and then I gave him these emails, and he proceeded to have a, a meltdown as well. Yeah, that was a pretty effective end to the series. There, where you just see that email come in and the on the iPhone screen. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. So you guys end up going to this place, Somerset, Kentucky, and I mean, she's talking about weird stuff. Oh, way weirder than goblins. Yeah, I mean it's 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 cults, it's human sacrifice and yeah. consp- government conspiracies and cover ups and all that kind of stuff. Kind of classic in a way, but yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. your classic kind of conspiracy narrative, especially yeah. especially in these political times. You hear a lot about that now. Oh yeah, but- for sure. And that's the scary thing of covering something like this is. You know, we were walking a tightrope with a lot of the stuff that she was saying in these emails because, I mean, listen, we're into weird stuff. We're into the paranormal. You know, that's that's our wheelhouse. That's what we're that's what we're enjoying chasing. Right. We aren't like Pizzagate conspiracy theorist type people. Uh, that stuff, frankly, scares me. <laughs> and yeah, right, I don't right. really want to get involved in that type of thing. But here we are with something that's very close to satanic panic type stuff that was experienced mm-hmm. in the 80s right. and right. we don't want to spark that flame anymore. hooded hooded figures and yeah all, exactly yeah, weird stuff right government mind control sacrificing uh was yeah. it operate the operation monarch or whatever yeah, yeah just all that kind of stuff yeah yeah it gets and then also you don't want to um you don't want to feed into someone's potential pathologies also absolutely if, you know, because that's very common that a lot of uh, people with different issues and schizophrenia and things like that really latch on to those, to being the, like, how can you be the ultimate victim? You know, that, that is like the exactly. ultimate victimhood. Yeah. And of course, then we find out the reason this woman disappeared is because she's in jail and she's not going anywhere. And she claims to us that she's in there on trumped up charges because she was looking into this thing. Uh, and she still believes that, uh, that the only reason she's there is because she decided to try and look into the same stuff we were looking into. Uh, and the government threw her in jail. Right. And, but you do a little more sleuthing in, in Somerset and you find out that there is, there's a lot of weirdness there just in that area that it just, it gets even more strange. Yeah, we didn't expect, frankly, we didn't expect the type of stuff that this woman was saying to pan out into anything. Because it really, when you when you read the emails, 
aside from the trigger words and the fact that it's a strange parallel to the David emails, uh, it just sounds like really paranoid ramblings. Um, and the type of stuff that, you know, you can see it in Connor when Connor reads the emails, he's like, he's upset. He's angry because he doesn't want to go look at this because he normally would never take it seriously, but we have to because of those parallels. It just seemed so pointed. Um, we expected it to not really pan into much, you know, these, these hooded figure stories and these cults and, you know, government conspiracies and all this type of stuff. But then we start asking people in town and they start corroborating the type of things that Amy's saying without knowing Amy even existed. And that's when we got really nervous because we have these very sane, normal people who are telling us these very insane stories um they sound a little better coming from them and i think it's just because the problem with paranormal research in general is you know it's a very subjective thing so you're doing a lot of interviewing of people who have had experiences and those people are only able to explain those experiences according to their uh own own lives and their own lenses so for someone like this this woman you know, she might have seen a group of people doing something strange in the woods. It could have been a completely harmless pagan ritual. Right. But to her, because she's from the Bible Belt, yeah, she's saying, oh, there's Satan worshipers in the woods, you know, and, and you have to take that in consideration. Yeah. yeah. But uh, something there's there's a lot of weird stuff about Somerset that people can find pretty easily doing their own research. Uh, and it's it's everything down to odd crime histories there the the like major cult figureheads that have been there and settled there um and even geological stuff yeah that's really bizarre you guys talk about that a lot this uh, huge uh, the quartz deposit and then yeah. the, uh concent- electric stuff yeah. and then the concentration of uh people with mental issues coming from this this area like almost a certain percentage of an entire the, the entire state of Kentucky's oh the men- mental health mental is out of control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean one of the things that that I did specifically between uh seasons 1 and 2 is I got really into um maps. And so I've got I'm, I'm staring at it right now in my office. I have six bulletin boards in here. And uh four of those bulletin boards are just maps. And so I have a map of cave densities in Kentucky. I have a map of geomagnetic anomalies in Kentucky. And then I have one of uh, abandoned mines and mineral deposits and things like that. And when you start to overlay those on one another, you start to notice there's really interesting overlaps between places that are particularly involved in this case and other big paranormal cases and cave density, uh, high, high geomagnetic anomalies and even some mineral deposits and uh, like old mines and caves. We didn't realize, you know, we we saw on the map, Somerset is in a massively red area when it comes to cave density and geomagnetic anomalies in particular. It wasn't until we met Nate in Somerset who, who showed us why there's such a really weird anomaly there. And he talks about this giant quartz deposit. It's one of the largest in the entire world, one of the top three largest. And because of that geomagnetic anomaly, and because of that quartz deposit, there's a piezological, uh, uh, yeah, a piezoelectric effect that happens in this place, which, which, uh, you know, 
if you start to look into a lot of parapsychological ideas about the causes of people's paranormal phenomena, the, the piezoelectric effect comes up a lot because it can mm -hmm. affect your brain. It can affect your eyes and give you hallucinations and things like that, which could be lending itself to the mental health problems in this area. And the geomagnetic anomaly is so strong in this part of Kentucky. It's one of the strongest, weirdest ones in the country. It actually is so strong. That, that anomaly is so strong that it pulls the Van Allen radiation belt down to meet it. So you have this extreme as above, so below thing happening yeah, right above yeah. Somerset, Kentucky. Yeah. And there's all this stuff about, and we're really getting into the weeds on this, but you do this um, experiment where you did this hypnosis experiment with this guy. I think you had, uh, was it, sorry, the the um, director of the, the one that put oh, it all Carl. together. Carl, Carl Pfeiffer. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Carl and Connor confused um but you did this and it's almost it's like that hellier was a doorway or a gate of somehow yeah. and <laughs> yes. somerset was on the fringe i mean this yeah. is like lovecraftian kind of stuff oh there's there's definitely like an ancient uh brooding terror type uh, vibe to everything that's going on season two is so much darker and i right. mean people can go back and see when we were in that when we're in that tunnel at the end of season one, we talk about feeling this weird feeling like there's something really old that's asleep. And it just sounds like we're, we're hearing it sleep talk. And that was amplified so much in season two because, you know, when we do these, the, the, the part of the reason we did the uh, hypnosis experiment was because we wanted to use it as a way to, try and extract usable, actionable information from some inner place or outer place, depending on the implications of this, this experiment. And Carl says a lot of really weird stuff. Like he, he effectively predicts the future <laughs> when he's doing this as well. He predicts stuff that's, that we're going to see days later, but he also talks about how the purpose of the Hellier project is to open a gateway and to let them back in who they are i don't know he says that the goblins the so-called goblins are the the minions of it whatever it is yeah uh so yeah i don't know <laughs> i don't know what to make of it there's a lot of people who've connected you know uh the power name parsons which pops up quite a bit in the series to um you know jack parsons and uh, the idea that maybe for s somehow we're doing some weird new version of, of some Babylon working. Uh, I don't know about that. Well, I was going to bring Parsons up. Um, yeah. Now, one of the interesting things, and I think this is a nice segue into this, um, is that Parsons, whenever he would do a rocket launch, he always, yeah. invo he always invoked Pan. Yeah. Yeah, Pan is a figure that... Uh, features quite heavily in the back half of season two. So how did this come about? <laughs> <laughs> so where did we uh, get to pan here? <laughs> we, uh, you know, one of the cool things, like I said, about putting Hellier out for free and, and making it as widely available as possible is people come to you with uh, tips. And this wasn't so much a tip uh, as it was a weird just weird timing 
but a friend of mine who used to write for an online magazine I run reached out and said, I have a copy of a book that I think you might be interested in. And it's a book by a guy by the name of Jim Brandon, uh, not his real name, uh, called Rebirth of Pan. And it's it's become kind of a holy grail book for a lot of Fordians because it's super, super hard to find. And copies of it, like even a bootleg copy of this thing is 150 bucks. So I was thrilled. He sends me this PDF copy that he had to hand scan uh, from a like a, in a library that he had to drive a couple hours to go to to find this book. And the book lays out some really interesting, fascinating things uh, about weirdness in America in particular. And the idea that there is some sort of reawakening earth spirit this guy just calls pan um and the i read it in one sitting because there's connections to three-toed footprints and the idea of sirius um sirius is another thing that pops up heavily in season two um it talks about power names um yeah, greenfield it, writes a lot about sirius greenfield yeah exactly yeah. um that's one of the things that's part of the climax of season two is this ritual that involves a blue star <laughs> and all of this stuff is laid out super plainly in rebirth of pan and so i start looking at this idea of of the masks of pan and faces of pan through the years and just it plots out this really fascinating case that there is some entity we when when i say pan i'm not necessarily talking about the greek god i'm more talking about this energy this spirit yeah, it's this, like a force. This, this intelligence, yeah, that yeah. exists. Right. Um, that shifts and changes and appears to people in different forms throughout history. And I start to I start to realize, well, maybe that's this ancient thing that we've been feeling this whole time. And because of some of the things that pop up with the number sequence, like Connor cracks what the numbers are. They weren't actually coordinates. They're they're just a coded message to do a specific ritual that has to do again with this idea of Sirius and the invocation of Pan. So we end up actually doing an invocation uh, in the final episode uh, that was a pretty huge deal, particularly for me, come, somebody coming from a very uh, authoritarian Baptist background. Like I was supposed to be a Baptist minister. So while I have dabbled in like chaos magic here and there, uh, I've never done an invocation, no ritual magic. And that was basically I'm, I'm functionally pagan. <laughs> after was this. it, was, was Dana a little more, um, familiar with that? Yeah. Dana, Dana's been a hedge, witch, you know, since she was 16, you know, she's been practicing. What is a hedge, witch? I didn't, I don't, I uh, never had heard that term before I, I saw it in the documentary. It's really just a term for a more uh, like folk magic based witch. Dana likes that term in particular because it uh, hedge witches typically lived on the edge of town. And so you had okay. to cross a liminal threshold to meet the hedge witch in that liminal space. Uh. So she she goes by that in, in particular just because of, of what that means and what that stands for. Right. Okay. But yeah, she she's she's been a practicing witch for years. Um, and so, you know, she's she's far more familiar 
with that type of stuff. And when she she asked me, because I was not supposed to do the invocation. It was supposed to be her. But she wasn't feeling it, and she was like, it's not right. I don't really have a connection here. And she asked me to do it, and I was not exactly into it. Um, that was a big deal. And it's kind of interesting the way that it all works out because it's that idea of that journey into the underworld to to learn something. And I learned then, well, I ain't a Christian. <laughs> well, that's, that's what's really interesting, how she brought that into it. And then you guys just employ, like, all these different methods. You have the, the cipher. You have uh, the latest... Uh, GPS technology, you have these different uh, ghost hunting and, and contact uh, methods, Estes method and the, the God helmet, yeah, the Frax yeah. box. And then you do really good primary source research at libraries and, and uh, local houses of documents. Um, and just you, you, you're not afraid to use anything, you know, you use it all in the pursuit of, of this stuff. And that's why I thought was really admirable. That means a lot. I mean, it's it's kind of scary to move outside of what people expect. And, you know, there's a lot of people, we caught a lot of flack from people who were like, well, these guys are looking for goblins. Why are they using ghost hunting equipment? Well, dude, what's a goblin? Please tell me, tell me that it's not some kind of a ghost-like creature. Because I really honestly think yeah. they all uh, are probably coming from the same place, whether that's a mental place, whether it's some kind of a... a, a a sigh type of thing that's happening where they're more poltergeist than anything or whether it's, you know, whether they're these, I don't know. I don't even like to say the word interdimensional cause it sounds so cheesy, but whether they're, it's some sort of an interdimensional creature or whatever. Or just, we don't, or just spiritual or something exactly. that we yeah. are like a non-corporeal kind of thing. Why couldn't we use, you know, why couldn't we use ghost hunting equipment to try and talk to Bigfoot? You know, there's a lot of really weird things that happen around Bigfoot sightings that cryptozoologists typically don't like to acknowledge because they're not into the woo-woo, you know? A ton. Yeah, you know, um, I'm sure you know Timothy Renner. Of course. Yeah, Wildness, his music. Wilderness Geist. Yep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I've, I've said it many times, him and Joshua Cutchin are working on a book that is going to be really, I think it's really going to change some things in the oh, I love cryptozoological it. world. Um, I love it. It's going to make a lot of people really angry, and that's kind of the way it needs to be. People need to be shaken up. Yeah, that's I mean, kind of what you guys are doing with Hellier. Oh, yeah, for sure. Exactly. Yeah, there's exactly. a lot of really people that are really rubbed raw by what we're doing, and I don't understand. I get, I, I understand intuitively why, but it doesn't really make sense because we're not really stepping on anybody's toes because <laughs> we're doing everything and trying to make people read books and use new methods yeah. of investigation. Has um, anyone come at you guys saying that they felt what you were doing was, was irresponsible in a way that it was too much that you guys oh were Lord, trying yeah, to open this gate and you should be careful. And yeah. dude, if, if you saw the, the emails that I've been getting for the last week, cause Hellier's only been out a little over a week at, right, this, right. at the time of this recording. Um, this is the, the kind of, it can be fun, but it's not so fun sometimes. Part of sifting through all of the emails, and there's people who are like, "You're being led astray. It's Satan. You're opening a doorway." Or you're always going to get those. It, I mean, it's it's insane right now. Um, and then there's people who are are saying like, um, "Well, we got a lot of flack for the uh, abduction experiment, mm -hmm. the first one in particular, because people thought it was 
extremely unethical, which it's not. It would have been if we didn't tell the guy what we were doing, like if he didn't know and hadn't signed up for it. Um, but I think there's a lot of people that don't like the implications of what we're what we're doing and the idea that, you know, there's it's I think it's obvious at this point that the viewing audience is part of whatever ritual is happening. And there's people that are uncomfortable with that, too. So, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of people who aren't into this idea of <laughs> being part of a giant hyper sigil. This, or whatever are, it is. Are there occultists who have contacted you and said that it should be more, you know, because they all have their different systems, might they think that it needs to be more organized, that it's too just, uh, you know, like uh, you guys are just trying to blow open this gate and that, you know, have you got anything like that? Not as many as I expected. In fact, I think the most um, supportive community has been uh, the occult community because I think they see... They see things happening here that we might not see, which is part of how we got to where we're at was with their help. And so, you know, yeah, there are little things where they're like, well, maybe I would have done this different or I would have done this different. And of course, there's always a handful of people who are like, oh, I could have done this better. And you guys are stupid. And you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Guess what? You're right. We don't know what we're doing. <laughs> we're literally just following the path. Um, well, there you go. I mean, that's the that... that's the magical path. You're the, being the fool. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exa exactly. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. And I think that the occultists who have been so supportive understand that and they see that journey. And people like, you know, Greenfield, Alan himself, sitting down with him and going, what you're doing is really important. And he even he is saying, I'm 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 too hesitant to give you too many of my thoughts because I don't want to ruin that journey for you. And I think that's the right attitude. Well, it's so funny, Greg, because I was as I'm as I'm watching this ten part series, and much more on to the second se the second season rather than the first. Yeah, I felt that this was stuff that we know. Seraphiel and I have been talking about. We've been talking about this stuff this whole entire year, essentially. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And 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 it's just and I I had no idea. I I had no idea. So I and I really felt like you. And your whole crew there were going down the similar path to where we have been going down. And probably a lot I, of other people at the same time. That's exactly yeah. what I was going to say is I don't think we're alone in this journey. I think there is something waking people up and mm -hmm. pushing them down a path at the same time. And most of those people, just they don't have the luxury of a, of a podcast like you guys. They don't have the luxury of, of, a, of a documentary project following them like us. Mm -hmm. That's another one of the things that we get a lot of emails about are people who are going – you are basically following what I've been going through in my life. And now I have more confidence to follow this path that I've been put on. And so I don't think we're alone. That's in exactly this. my experience. Yeah. I, I don't think yeah. we're alone in this. If anything, hopefully what we're doing is giving people more confidence to follow that path themselves. I, for me, just personally, you know, I have some just things in my, in my own personal life where I've just been following this path and the the secret cipher has a key role in some of that for me so when you pull the secret cipher out in season one i'm like what, what what's going on <laughs> <I> <laughs> and love then it, it just so and much. then it just it just keeps rolling from there and and definitely like when i you know when i said that 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 episode with with alan spoke to me 
it's like I felt like, you know, he's telling me, okay, you know, this is because there's certain things right now, you know, I'm trying to to get kind of squared away and you know, move on to the next step. And it's like, that's what I felt like he was telling me, you know, yeah. so so it's, it's, it's you have this like this audience interaction that I don't know if it was intended, but it's definitely there and it's definitely palpable. Now, I, I don't like, know some. I don't know so much as if it's intended as right. we're we're aware of it now, and so right. we can speak to it a little bit more this season because the first season made us aware of of the audience interaction, and mm-hmm. so we've made a bit more of an effort to invite that in the second season, and I mean it's it, it's. I think it was it was uh, Tim Tim Binall said to me, my friend Tim goes, uh, "Do you think that the that your initiation was successful?" And I was like, "That's assuming the initiation's for us, and not for the viewer. There might be a bigger reason why we were doing all of this, and it might not have anything to do with us. It might be about the viewing audience." Yeah, and it makes you wonder too that you know this was stuff that these guys these tricksters or these occultists or whoever they were 20 years ago whether they kind of set some of this stuff in motion as some kind of magical working oh 100 percent. and i mean i I believe that more now than ever because it really makes me think of just like that that i think that that email that first email that you got may have been sent to a whole bunch of people yeah that's uh, you know what it's so funny you you say that you yes. bet you were the one that bid on it. Yeah, it was it, it was probably like sent to a whole bunch of other people, and they yep. looked at it and said, "This guy's crazy," you know. Of course, and, and, and yeah. they squared it away. But you were like, "This interests me." Yeah. So maybe well, that's that, that what was it was intended. The, it was always the interesting thing to me because it never made sense about it being sent to a, you know a group of teenage ghost hunters, um, but where I was in my life at that point, you know, I was very burned out on, on looking at people's pictures of orbs. You know what I mean? (laughs) So like somebody goes, Hey, I got goblins in my backyard and I'm kind of like, all right, this sounds interesting. This is enough to make me interested. And, uh, maybe that's, maybe that was all that that was about was getting somebody interested enough to, to follow it. I want to talk a little bit about this lines, the the connection to like these spots in Kentucky and to Mount Shasta, but yeah. Mount Shasta has come up not only with us, but in another person that we know is research, you know, you've got Mount Shasta where essentially like the I am movement and the, um, the, the St. Germain mm-hmm. mythology mm-hmm. and the weird kind of like, yeah, the Lemurians and the weird and the and the, the weird kind of fascist stuff that was going on around Dudley William Dudley Pelly and mm. uh, Guy Ballard, I think, was the founder of the IM movement or IM Foundation or whatever it was called. And then, of course, that has a direct link to some of the contactees like Adamski. Yeah, and I think for sure. uh, George Hunt Williamson, I think too. And then you've got all these. Uh, I think it was uh, one of you guys draws these lines that connect the Stillwater Bridge in, in Minnesota yeah. over to stuff in Kentucky, Point Pleasant, another line that goes out to to Mount Shasta, where you had just been, apparently. Yeah. I, I thought that was, I'd like to talk a little bit about that. 
the the lines is something that Carl came up with. He, you know, Carl is as interested in maps as I am. And during his downtime, he just started fiddling where he was like, he started looking at the places that are important to this case on, on a map. And then he realized some of them lined up in a really interesting way. So he started drawing straight lines between all the pinpoints and was getting an absurd amount of straight lines uh, that just seem statistically interesting. And so he starts lining all these places up and it almost turns into a way into a way to like litmus test some other things. So like one of the things that that people kept trying to tell us to look into was like the Flatwoods monster case, right? So he puts that in and there's no straight lines that connect that to anything, which is interesting. He starts to look at where we all live, um, places that have come up in Estes method sessions, um, places that we've investigated. And he starts to draw these straight lines. And one of the most interesting lines was this line that goes directly over top of the peak of Mount Shasta. The reason that was really interesting to us is because Mount Shasta is the reason we got distracted from following this case to begin with. When Dane and I moved from Canada to the States, we got jobs here in Cincinnati. One of the things that we did when we were testing our first car was, well, listen, Hellier, this place where this guy says that these goblins were in his backyard, it's only a few hours away from us. Let's go and let's just see if this could have even happened here. And so I think it was like 2015, we drove out there and start poking around and talking to the locals and showing them these photographs. And then we found a place that looked very much like the house that David describes in his emails where this this happened. And it looked like it had been abandoned for about two or three years. So everything in this thing fit. We're like, perfect. This was a great uh, like first run. Now we can prepare and we can come back. L- literally like a week or two after that first that first run to Hellier, we got asked to do an episode of Finding Bigfoot. And we went out to Mount Shasta for two weeks to shoot a special episode because they they were looking into paranormal Bigfoot cases and those guys on that show won't touch that stuff with a 10-foot pole. They don't, again, cryptozoologists don't do the woo-woo stuff. Right. And so they right. brought us out to go and look at them because we were paranormal investigators. Even though the whole thing is weird, but that's, you know. Of course, absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, we're, they're flesh and blood that's it and you guys are insane that type of thing and we experienced a lot of weird stuff exactly really for some reason the best hide and seek player in the world (laughs) is a gigantic hairy ape that hangs out in people's backyards i don't understand it but that's because it's a ghost but what do i know anyway we do this episode and then our lives change quite a bit we start to get a lot of attention and we start getting offers to do other walk-ons on other shows and we get more cases to look into. We start doing stuff with our, our museum and we just never go back to Hellier. So it was really interesting that Shasta lines up not only because of the connections to like underground cities and that type of weirdness and high strangeness in general, but because that was the thing that initially distracted us from following up on this case sooner. So was he inspired by ideas of like ley lines or the old straight track, Alfred Watkins and stuff like that? Or did he just, he was just experimenting? 
I think he was just experimenting and then he started to think more about these ideas of ley lines or the ideas that like, you know, the Fae, they only moved in straight lines. That's why in places like Iceland mm-hmm. with the elves and stuff, they don't, they don't build, they, they, they have to not build houses on those lines because they don't want to upset the Fae. Um, so those types of things started to come to him as he was noticing this pattern and these correlations. So that's, he's, he kind of worked his way backwards from experimenting with these lines and going, this is really weird. This shouldn't be doing this. And then looking at different stuff like ley lines, or even, uh, there was a book that came out in the fifties or the sixties by, uh, the ufologist, uh, Ami Michelle, which is, um, it's called, uh, flying saucers in the straight line mystery. And it's all about how flying saucer sightings in, in a particular flap start to really only appear in straight lines and how that's a really crazy statistical anomaly. And it just breaks yeah. it down like, the more points on it, the more that that is a statistically interesting thing. Yeah, and I've so, heard of that book. Yeah, that's interesting. It's oh. wild. And, and we don't – I mean, honestly, we're not quite sure what to make of it yet other than it's interesting and it's significant. And we need to pay attention to it. We just don't know what exactly it's showing. Yet another way fairy lore and ufology overlap. Yet yeah. another way. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the role of caves in and of themselves. Um, I found that particularly interesting. And it made me think about uh, some of the ancient mystery schools yeah, and the yeah. role that caves had in that. And, you know, also, I mean, you, you can go way back, which you do actually uh, talking about, you know, cave art from 35,000 years ago. Uh-huh. You know, uh, and this is, um, there's a lot there, I think, to unpack, but just... The Eleusinian Mysteries and the role of caves there. I think the Myth- Mithras mystery cult had something yeah. to do with caves. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it really made me think about, you know, the resurrection of Lazarus from the Bible. Yes. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus himself. Yeah. Yep. You know, yep. Um, and some of the parallels is like, you know, the, the some of the names are weird. Like, you know, the, 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 that goes back to like David Christie. Christ, yeah, exactly. David. Christ. David. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. it, even the name Hellier, a journey yeah. to a journey into the underworld, a journey into right. hell, right? And then you right. come out a changed person. All right. of these weird little things that just pop up, and whether it's coincidence or whether it's by design, uh, those those are I think pretty interesting clues as to what is actually happening with this project. And I think that the idea is it's showing. You know, the idea of going into caves and then having a, a, an experience that changes you and coming back with a new piece of information, that's really, you know, we've, we've gained so many tools with the, the creation of this project, whether it's Carl's lines, whether it's the, the, you know, looking at the overlays of geomagnetic anomaly maps and cave density maps and power names, um, the use of, of things like hypnotism or the God helmet, uh, all of these different things coming together, the numbers those are things we didn't have before we started this journey, before we entered the cave, before we went to hellier. And now we have those things and we brought them back out and we presented them to the world and said, use these. <laughs> and that I think is the point. Have you looked into the David Politis stuff, the missing 411? 
Yeah, you know, it, it, it keeps coming up all the time, and uh, I was hesitant to look into it at first, and eventually I caved, and I got a, a couple of books, and I got the big map. No pun, no pun intended. <laughs> yes. And I, I don't see an immediate connection, which is the interesting thing. I mean, I know that there's like a graphic that's been going around. It's like, you know, look at the cave system and look at the missing persons thing. That's not the actual map. Um, that's, that's, somebody has added on to that Pilates map. Uh, when you actually overlay the map on any of our stuff, like there's really, there's not a whole lot of stuff that actually happens in Kentucky in, in a lot of his, his research, at least not anywhere near where we're looking into. So I don't even, I don't know if, if it overlays at all. I think the, the work is interesting, but I don't know if it's directly, uh, connected to any of the stuff that we're doing. Yeah, some of that, what I was kind of thinking about that when I mentioned Pilatus is there is some of the stuff in his research about these certain of these places where people disappear, like having devil's names, like devil's crossroads or devil's fort or something, just something like that. And and, um, that comes up, I think, in uh, some of Renner's research, too. Um, yes. Another guy yeah. named Steve Stockton that we know it's kind of has looked into all that, and that's that's just weird too. The, and and the that, that association thing, with the fairy lore too. The names thing is really bizarre and really interesting because we keep noticing that popping up. Um, what the first thing that really drew our attention to that was that book Rebirth of Pan because in it Jim Brandon gives this small list of names that seem to. Uh, attract a lot of paranormal activity around them and we talk about it in the in the series in, in i think the first or no it's it's a, like the eighth or ninth episode um pike is one of them and everything that we're we immediately researching was in pikeville uh yeah. parsons was another one and the person who owned this house that we thought was david's we thought might have been David, like his last name was Parsons. Parsons continues to pop up, you know, Jack Parsons. Um, and Faye, like words that have to do with Faye. So like Fayetteville and places like that have a super high amount of weird paranormal activity. Um, and, you know, like Pike is just another another word for like Pixie. So that was one of the originators of that was Pike, Pixie, Faye, and then Fayetteville. And you start to notice that. I think uh, – I think it was actually Jim Brandon who coined the the Fayetteville factor thing that that Lauren Coleman started running with later. So there's a weird thing with names. I, I, it's one of the things I don't know how it works, but I know that there's correlations and they're interesting and they're worth paying attention to. Right. Well, that's the thing about this stuff is like you know it's like you gotta you gotta really sit down and really think about it. And once you get into the weeds with this. I mean, did you ever feel like at a certain point that you were going crazy? I still feel that way. <laughs> you still feel that way, yeah. Yeah, dude. You're in course. the Chapel Perilous. Yeah, yeah we're constantly, uh, you know, it, it, there are multiple points, particularly during season two, where I think every single one of us quit because it was just too much. Yeah. Um, and we kind of had to just be reeled back in. Somebody else would reel us back in. Fortunately, we've not all gone insane at the same time. The day that that happens, I think all hope is lost. But fortunately, we all choose to go nuts at different times. Um, It's hard not to. It's hard not to feel like you're going crazy because 
without the context, talking about this type of stuff to somebody, you can't just like you can't just walk up to somebody and start talking to them about this stuff without them thinking you're nuts. Um, yeah. You need that context. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've definitely um, experienced <laughs> that I, I ourselves. Was just saying, I'm sure you don't know anything about that. Yeah, yeah it's it's. <laughs> Trying to explain what the secret cipher of the Euphonauts is is a little hard. That's uh, that is, although that, now we can just say, "Hey, man, you seen Hellier?" <laughs> right? They're gonna go. They're gonna go. What is that? And then you're gonna have an even bigger problem. <laughs> I did want to share that that uh, we actually talked about this on the show. Well, our, our favorite um, item from Rebirth of Pan was his theory about why weird stuff happened in trailer parks. Yeah, man, isn't that wild? <laughs> Seriously, and basically, so, it's like it's like a, a trailer is an orgone accumulator. It, it's an orgone accumulator, and you've got an yeah. entire lot of orgone accumulators. And it sounds nuts, but think about it; it makes total sense. Have you gotten a hold of a copy of Weird of Amer- Weird America yet? I do have a copy of it. That's the one I've actually been able to find it for a decent price. Cool, cool. Yeah. Um. Is that has does that have anything with these Kentucky locations? I've I've uh, had it through loan a couple times, but I don't I don't remember all the places in Kentucky. Uh, it's got some stuff in it, but there's nothing there's nothing that stuck out enough for me to really dig into. Um, cool, cool. It's a great book, and there's a lot of really interesting stuff. It's not like your typical Weird America book, um, but I don't think there was anything there that really piqued my interest. That was a part of any of the locations that you guys use for this. No, nothing, nothing that stands out. One thing I wanted to ask you about uh, going back to Greenfield for just a bit. Uh, he does say something very interesting in episode seven. You're talking about Terry Wrist, mm-hmm. and he says, "I haven't seen him in a long time. It's been a while since him and I played these games, to, played games together." Or did yes, games the, the, the sports they were into. The sports that, yeah. What do you think he's talking about? I know what he's talking about, but I can't tell you what he's talking about. Uh. <laughs> that's that's his story to tell. I if guess not, I'll ask him. <laughs> you, you, you can ask him. I don't know if he'll answer you publicly about it. Like I, I won't know yeah. if he talks about it on air. It's interesting. Um, it's uh, yeah. It, it, Greenfield was into some interesting stuff back in the day, and uh, that's how he knows Terry. Huh. Yeah, All right, I'm curious. There's I hate a whole other story. <laughs> no, there's a whole other story there. I'm, 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 I've been since since knowing about Alan and seeing your documentary. It's there's there's a whole other aspect to that. There, there there's is a whole you know other what? story. I'm I'm glad there is because one of the issues that we have now is there are people who come out of the woodwork to say, "Well, I'm Terry." And because Greenfield has this information that he doesn't make publicly available about how he knows Terry and how he met him, he's been able to give us information so that we can go, okay, uh, where did you meet Greenfield? Yeah, he alluded and to the, the code, the code it, word yeah, or something. Exactly. So we have information now that we can keep close to our chest. So when somebody does come out of the water, which they do and they have, and they're people literally right now trying to pretend that they're Terry – and I'll ask them, okay, how do you know Alan? Where'd you meet him? And there's no answer. You think he's so, still out there? Um, 
I think he could be for sure. Yeah. I mean, Allen seems to think he's still out there, and uh, the other guy who thinks he met him thinks to think he's still out there. But he would be in his mid seventies at this point. So how aware he is, I don't know. Um, yeah, but I think uh, I think there's a very good chance he's still out there. So they ju- they just say ninety three or hail heiress. I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's yeah. probably that may be it or thirty one. Um, yeah. Turning away from Hillier, Traveling Museum of the Occult. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. The the Traveling Museum of the Paranormal and the Occult is something that Dane and I have run now for about five or six years. Uh, it is a, a traveling uh, display, uh, exhibition of things that are allegedly haunted, cursed, uh, or historically significant to paranormal research and investigation. And it's something that we started quite by accident. Um, you know, we've been poking around in dark corners for almost 20 years now. And so we just became known as the, the weird kids who like this type of stuff. So people would give us things or we'd get stuff from cases that people thought were haunted. And we were actually, it was, uh, an event we were doing here in Kentucky. We were actually giving one of the only two presentations we ever did on that original alien abduction experiment. Uh, and they gave us a table. And they said, uh, yeah, you know, because your guys are speakers, you have a, you have a table. We didn't have anything to sell or promote or anything. So we were like, well, you know, we've got all this stuff that we've collected that's spooky and people have said is haunted and we've experienced weird stuff with. Let's put some out and let people interact with it. They never get a chance to do that. And so many people were interested and so many people had questions that we realized there was something there. And we realized the only real paranormal museums that exist are – you know, there's a couple of them in the in the Northeast and uh, like New England area, and then there's one in Vegas. But people have to go to those. And since we travel so much to do speaking gigs, we thought, well, this is a perfect opportunity to bring this stuff to people. And it just took off. And now we have a post office box where people send all kinds of stuff constantly. Um, people come up to us at events that we're at with cursed idols under their arms. Um, oh, great. <laughs> And, and I mean, it's, it's just, it's every day now. Uh, and then it's, it's, it's interesting stuff too, where we'll meet people who like have pieces of, of Betty Hill's dress that had lab testing done on them and they just give Hmm. them to us. So we have great stuff like this that we're preserving and protecting and we're able to preserve, you know, folklore behind them and, and present them to people. So we have a big, like we have a, a massive tent that looks like a, Victorian parlor on the inside and there's special lighting and there's TVs that have information about some of the objects and people can walk in and it's really a museum experience that we bring to people. So like the dress that she was wearing the day of the abduction. It is exactly the dress that she was wearing. Yeah. We have slices of it, um, that were actually sent away for lab testing. And, um, yeah, (laughs) it's actually weird things that actually, uh, if you look into it, the research that they've done on it is bizarre because it actually changed color. And the, you know, obviously they're scientists, so they're trying to be as unbiased as possible. And they say that it was molecularly attacked. Can yeah. you cut off a little 10 strip for me, man? Yeah, sure. You got it. <laughs> what's, so, what's one of the weirdest things that you got? Um, hmm. I mean, you know, the, our our sort of unofficial mascot is a an African idol that we nicknamed Billy because he's an idol. Womp womp. 
uh, <laughs> he was found under a home in Dayton, Ohio, bound in twine uh, in a burlap sack. And it took us a long time to figure out where he was from. But the people that the people that found him, they were experiencing poltergeist activity and terrible, terrible nightmares. So for a while, we called him the idol of nightmares because a lot of people that interacted with him would have terrible dreams. Uh, I even had dreams, nightmares, uh, after interacting with it. Um, the EVPs that we'd get for it were only guttural screaming for the first several months. Um, eventually, nice. there were words that started to come out, and it sounded like there was personality there. Um, you know, you guys talked to John Tenney. One of my favorite EVPs was an interaction we had with with Tenney. We were at, at an event in Ohio State Reformatory, and we did a big group session at the end where everybody kind of did their own uh, EVPs with Billy. And we said, Tenny, let's do something weird. And he's like, all right. He's like, let me think. And then he kind of looks out into the crowd, and there's maybe like 150 people. And he goes, somebody yell out a word. And somebody yell out the word goat. And he was like, ah, perfect. Just weird enough. Everybody think of the word goat and just mentally project it to Billy, and we'll see if we can get him to say it in an EVP. And so everybody did this, and we play the EVP back, and it says, I am not a goat. John Tenney is a liar and it's clear as a bell. <laughs> and of course everybody laughs and, and, and he and Tenney have a very interesting relationship now. And, but we find out later, Billy was a Kesey figure from the central Congo region. We actually met an archeologist uh, in Chicago who worked for the field museum and he was able to find out Billy's a Kesey figure. They were figures that were used by the central Congo people to, um, to speak to their gods, to speak to their ancestors, to commune with the spirits of, of the land and the, in the, in the air. And they communicated in dreams. And the reason, at least this is what, uh, this is what this guy said was the, these statues were destroyed because of Christian missionaries. Christian missionaries came in, they took these statues and they made big burn piles out of them while they converted the, the Congolese people to Christianity. And then the ones that they didn't destroy, they desecrated and they took back to the States to use as art pieces. Normally when you see them, they're covered in nails because those were communal Kisi figures that were used to make deals, public deals with the gods. Um, Billy probably belonged to a healer, which is why he doesn't have any nails. If I was found after all of that by a Midwestern family in Dayton, Ohio, I probably would have screamed a lot too. So now Billy is sort of the, the mascot because it really shows what our – Billy's story is representative of everything we're trying to do with the museum, which is to impress the idea of curiosity over fear. Because if you know, there were a lot of people who were very scared of Billy when he first showed up because of all the screaming and all the bad dreams. Um, but if we hadn't pushed through, we wouldn't have learned who he was and what he was for. And now we have this great teaching tool that's like, no, be curious. Don't be afraid. People who are trying to make you afraid are people who are trying to exert some kind of control over you. Um, you, you know, if you, if you decide to be afraid, you're never going to learn anything about the world. And if you can learn to not be afraid of a, of a, of a haunted statue, you can learn not to be afraid of your neighbor who has beliefs that are different than you. Um, so he's probably the most active, strangest thing that we have in the collection. 
um, that uh, illustrates a really great story. Yeah, I love how you're using that as a teaching tool. That's great. And it's it's interesting how something like that could end up in an attic in Dayton, Ohio. Well, it was actually in the crawl space. Uh, it was, and it had been down there for a very long time. The guy had only lived there for like six months or something. Yeah. The only reason he even found it is because he was running new cable. And there's this lump of dirt bound in a burlap sack. Um, you know, that type of thing was is interesting too because uh, once we figured out he was a Kesey, we could go and look at other Kesey's. And plenty of them are actually bound in burlap. Um, so how it got to Dayton, Ohio, I don't know. But the way that it's probably the way that he probably got to the States is because Christian missionaries probably took him. Hmm. Interesting stuff, Greg. That's fascinating, man. <laughs> I am. Uh, so what's uh, what's next for you, man? What's what's the next step? And I'm sure also, you know, the good question is where where can people find you and Dana and find Hellier? Um, I don't know what the next step is. <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> is this now, the end of Hellier? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, now, where we're at now, literally, when people finish the final episode, they're caught up where we're pretty much where we're at. Um, we, we finished shooting it in at the end of September. So it's very recent. Like it's insane that right. we even got it out like two, two seasons of this out in a year. Uh, Carl did a really amazing job and really yeah. crushed it. Um, so people ten, are caught uh, ten up. 10 episodes too. I mean, that's, and that's a pretty big feat. episodes, yeah. man. It's insane. Well, a lot of it was filmed before the first season was even out. So Carl's been been picking away at it but the bulk of a lot of the stuff that we shot what what interview wise and everything came in september so like carl and connor helped too those guys had a camp hellier for the like two weeks they they hold up together at connor's place and just edited and did music and all that kind of stuff and in color correction um so now people are pretty much caught up i will say uh, this is whole thing. Every time we feel like we do something we're supposed to do, something else drops in our laps. Um, five hours after Hellier went live, we got a pretty major, massive lead from somebody who watched it. So uh, that I keep saying I can't do another season. It's so stressful. I cannot do another season of Hellier for like a year at least. I need to relax. We have another project that we're working on right now that, that has to do with one of the items in the museum. Um, but I don't know if we're in control of that. <laughs> so I, I don't know. We might be shooting more stuff sooner rather than later. I don't know. Sounds um, like this thing is a, it's a life of its own. It's We just kind of joke now that we're making this project on behalf of the Phenomena. The Phenomena is the real executive producer on this. We just kind of go where we're pointed. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true of just uh, the way that it, it, it interacts with people just in their own lives, yeah. whether you're making a film or not. I think that that's, I mean, it just so happens that that's what you guys are doing, but I think that that's, you got to follow where it leads you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's all we're what, doing. Uh, that's kind of what I've been discovering too. Yeah. And, and hopefully the project encourages other people to follow that too. And to, 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 be curious and to have wonder about the world around them and to, you know, maybe go and look into that thing that you normally wouldn't have looked into. That's, uh, 
that's our hope. That's our hope is it's, it's re-enchanting the world. I think that's a good place to stop. Where can people find it, Greg, and also uh, find you guys? If people want to see what's up with Hellier, they can watch uh, the first, uh, and by the time they hear this, the second season for free, um, they can go to Amazon Prime and watch it. Uh, they can go to YouTube and watch it. Uh, or they can go to hellier.tv, and we've got links everywhere. I do suggest people watch it on Amazon, though, because that actually gives us a few cents. <laughs> and then if people want to learn more about like Dana and I, they can go to paramuseum.com. All right. Cool. Excellent. Thanks a lot. I think this is a great interview. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Dude, this uh, was so much fun. Thank you, guys. Yeah, stay in the line for us. We're going to close this section out, and guys, we'll be back to uh, briefly close out the show on Conspiracy Normal. Greg Newkirk from Hellier. It was a pretty cool interview. It was a pretty cool interview. That covered, I think, a good portion of what is in Hellier, but there is a lot more. Yeah, yeah. Vastly a lot more. We didn't even really touch on any of the fairy lore stuff, which is odd because we kind of always talk about it, but there was just so much more there. I uh, I was quite impressed by the show. I I'm meaning Hellier. Um that I actually kind of deliberately avoided it for a little while cuz everybody was talking about it. I kind of wanted the the fewer to kind of doing you wear down a, show? a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um then about like a couple of months ago I knew that the second one was going to come out, so I was like, "Well, I'll just wait." Right. And then I decided, well, you know, I'll get try to get Newkirk on the show. So I watched it. And I will reiterate that just about almost everything in it reflected certain things going on in my own life. And I think that it also reflected things that you and I have talked about on the show. Mm-hmm. And that we've also kind of talked about in private and have mm-hmm. kind of kept between ourselves that we haven't really talked about as much. Yeah, connecting connecting dots. Yeah, connecting a lot of dots. Um, the interesting synchronicity about us and the release of Hellier was that we had just had Alan Greenfield on. And we recorded that interview on November 19th. So, like, I wanted to get ahead of the game a little bit before Thanksgiving so we could take a, kind of take a break yeah. around that time. We were in the holiday, holiday time, so we had done a couple of shows, I think, the week before. So we were ahead. And I we dropped that show, I believe, I think, on December 1st, which was only like a couple of days after Hellier Season 2 came out. Right. So it was a perfect drop on that show. Yeah, totally then, unintended. Yeah, Aaron Gullius tweeted about it, and then Greg Newkirk 
retweeted that. And I think he he retweeted before you knew that Alan Greenfield would actually appear. I had kind of known some things about Greenfield and Hellier. Ren had um, said that he felt that there was there was a link to something that Greenfield had done. Um possibility that everything that they were going through was this ritual that was designed by Alan Greenfield. That was Ren's theory. I'd heard Ren talk about that. Yeah. And that kind of put Greenfield kind of back on my radar a little bit because I knew about him and I knew about the secret side for the Euphonauts and he was always somebody like, I'd like to get on the show, but then I kind of forgot about him. And then when Ren's told me that, not even remotely thinking about Hellier, I contacted, you know, I thought, okay, I got to get Alan Greenfield on. Then when we had Stephanie Quick on, she kind of put us in touch with him. Cool. And was kind of an intermediary. And then I emailed Alan and then got him on the show, which we had done maybe 10 or so days. And it's funny because Alan mentioned Hellier. Um, I wasn't, I didn't know that, but I did not know that in the second season, there was this little bit of a prominent role. And there yeah. was episode seven of the show of that episode that was all pretty much about Alan where they interviewed him. Yeah. So that was a synchronicity in and of itself. And of course, if you've watched Hellier, Hellier is nothing but a series of synchronicities for those people. Mm -hmm. Chapel perilous. And you know, I've, I've had my own kind of uh, synchronistic year. I can say, and you have as well. So, you know, here we are kind of like in the same vein, experiencing those exact same experiences almost that they're less, maybe less spooky, maybe less spooky. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. But, but just uh, getting into that, that way of thinking. Yeah. Well, the, the role of synchronicity, right? The role of synchronicity in any of this, it, it role of synchronicity in your life and what it means. It's not necessarily that you're going crazy is not necessarily that you think that something is maybe guiding you, although it definitely feels like that, but just like, I think looking at it and saying, I am being guided to a certain end somewhere that this is pointing to that. And I've, I've, I'm being deliberately vague because I don't, this is not something I prepared to really yeah. talk about well, and there's a lot of stuff you can't talk about, and I can't talk yeah, about. Yeah, right. And the secret, the the secret cipher, the Euphonauts figures prominently in some of my synchronicities, particularly in one rather large synchronicity that yeah. I won't go into, but because it involves someone, so I, I'm not going to say you know what that is, but. I, you have to subscribe to the Patreon. <laughs> yeah, you might. You might have to subscribe to the Patreon. But uh, I'm not so sure I'm ready to to talk about that. But yeah, anyway. Yeah. But uh, these things have been happening to but us. These things have I, been I happening. just had an um, uh, amazing one that's like leading to a crazy opportunity that's been a fulfillment of something that I initially right. set out to do a year ago. And I really used as a uh, kind of linchpin and in, 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 uh, inspiration to change my entire life. And now that has all come to uh, some kind of fruition with a crazy synchronicity that happened to me a couple of weeks ago. 
And so, yeah, I mean, I can totally relate, man. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Yeah. I, I think we need to listen to those things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we need to listen to it. It's, it's, it's just like it's just a guiding force in our life where these things take us. And I think once you're open to it, I think that they start happening more and more. And it feels like, yeah, you're going crazy a little bit. And it's also hard to convey that to other people that may not experience it. Yeah. Or may just not be in your shoes. Yeah. Thank- and- thankfully, the the person who I experienced this synchronicity with was there to see mm-hmm. something like this. And that was right. just like, you know, that, right. that added to it. Sorry we're being deliberately vague, folks. <laughs> it just kind of is what it is at the moment. But, but more will be revealed. The method will be revealed. <laughs> we will manatize the eschaton at some Maybe. point. We promise. So, But yeah, I want to thank Greg Newkirk for coming on. That was very, very cool. Um, I would love to get him on again, talk to him and to Dana. We may, I may, coming moving forward, get some of the other people that are involved with Hellier and get them on the show to yeah, talk about their perspective. Not? Yeah, I'd like to get some of those people on because some of those people are serious researchers, and they can talk about other aspects of the paranormal as well. Uh, maybe get Tinny back on to talk about some of this. But highly recommend. I highly recommend it. I highly recommend Hellier. First season, second season. Guys, if you've not watched this, you can go to YouTube, you can go to Amazon Prime, watch this thing. You, I was blown away by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's interesting because not everybody feels that way. Yeah. And don't, don't binge watch it as you go to sleep every night because it gets weird. Yeah. You might have weird dreams. <laughs> so, okay. Well, just a little housekeeping stuff right now, guys. Uh, we are closing, rapidly moving out to the end of the year. This uh, is how things are going to be. We recorded before this an interview with a lady here in Nashville named Naomi Van Winkle, who has a podcast called Cult in Connecticut. I'll go ahead and give a little uh, teaser about that. That's going to be the next episode that we're putting out. And after that, Dr. Future will be here in the studio, in Studio B, finally, or Studio, it's it's Studio The studio. The studio, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I lapse. I go back to like two years ago. Uh, So he's going to be here in the studio. And then after that, we're going to do our year in review. So things may be a little bit different this year as opposed to last year because I've kind of wanted to get Newkirk on, talk about Hellier. Uh, so we may actually be putting out the year in review the first week of January. Okay. So just you know, after New Year's. So it may be a little strange, but you'll get that. So we can take like kind of a three-week break. So What are we going to do? I know. I know. Well, boring Christmas and New Year's, all that stuff. So thank you guys for listening. Uh Tell everybody about where you can find us on Patreon, what we got on there, all that good stuff. You can find us on patreon.com slash conspiranormal. We got a lot of bonus episodes, including uh, we might start doing a couple little uh, ideas of series of extra shows. We got a lot of ideas for the new year, so get in. 
uh, before the new year, and uh, we're going to have a lot of stuff. Okay, absolutely. And don't forget the YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. Please subscribe there. Please leave reviews on iTunes. We haven't gotten any in a while, so we'd love to see those. And I think that's it. So, guys, join us next time on Conspiranormal. time inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.